0: Good morning and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes for this week, where we as ever try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And I'm doing this a little bit earlier than usual, both in the week and in terms of time, because I am frantically going over my speech for next week. It is the kickoff speech of the book, so it's a huge week, and I'll probably do one of these um, on our Washington trip next week when my faithful right-hand man Uh, the McCartney to my Lennon, John Goodnight and I, the chief of staff of my firm, go to Washington, meet with the Koch Foundation, the Stand Together Alliance, and we've been invited to go to one of the salon dinners of the donors for the Stand Together Alliance to show them the book that they bought. Our book, The Last Best Hope, where I give the first speech of, I'm sure, hundreds on the book, and it really is the kickoff place of that process. And For fun, I may actually – I'm toying with the idea of giving you a version of that speech uh, just off the top of my head next week um, and then talking a little bit when I get back about what the trip was like as then going on with the World Through Great Power's Eyes list that we've been working on, which has met with a lot of acclaim. A lot of you like this as we explain what each of the chess pieces thinks and can do. We've done so far China – the U.S. and Japan, and today we're going to do the Anglosphere, so never fear, we'll keep going with that, but I think it would be great to involve you guys in the book as much as possible, uh, The Last Best Hope. Again, we're 9-11ths done. I'll be writing Chapter 10 this month, and then John and I are going to talk, and I'll write the conclusion in July, then frantic word editing and copying, copy editing to get the book out uh, to White Fox, our wonderful publisher, by September 3rd. So it's on the stands ahead of the Iowa caucuses. Again, this is nothing if not a political book in early February. So a hugely rushed process, but it's been wonderfully creative in the firm. And uh, frankly, again, I think it's my revolver. If uh, to dare more boldly was rubber soul, I think this is revolver even better and uh, probably as good as I can do like revolver for the Beatles. And um, I'm very, very excited to share that with you. And I'll probably give you a version of the speech next week as i muddle through it today but ahead of that i thought we'd continue with the through the great powers eyes look at what the great power chess pieces can do what they can think and where they are and we started with the bipolar notion of the world of the us and china as the two superpowers and then though beneath them are these great powers uh with an awful lot of room to run with the football to avoid the graham green trap and set their own course and either align with one or other of the superpowers or go their own way and we started with Japan which is firmly in the camp of the United States and you can argue of anything under Shinzo Abe the Japanese actually led the way that they they're the ones who created the quad under Shinzo Abe they're the ones who created CPTPP uh, the Americans only joined the quad after Abe had resecured it between Abe's ties with Modi, Narendra Modi of India and after the Americans uh, in, in an act of colossal self-harm walked away from the groundbreaking free trade deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Japanese didn't take their ball and go home. They merely went ahead without the Americans showing. It's a very different kind of Cold War, where these great powers don't just give up in frustration if the superpowers don't like what they do, but go their own way. And in fact, the Japanese kept it going. The CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, is basically the same thing. As the TPP just minus idiotic America spearheaded again by Japan. So it's not that these powers are docilely falling into line behind America. In the case of Japan, they're they're going they're setting the pace, and the Americans are intelligently following. Um, we're going to talk about another great power now, the Anglosphere, which is firmly in the American camp, the next great power to be firmly in the American camp. And I always find this hysterical that so many members of the incredibly fractious European Union doubt the existence of the Anglosphere. Well, let's compare the record of the European Union, which doesn't have a common foreign policy on Russia, doesn't have a common foreign policy on China, doesn't have a foreign com- common foreign policy on the United States, doesn't have an army, and doesn't have growth rates of 2%. And they have the arrogance to wish away the Anglosphere because they don't like it because it involves Britain and Britain with Brexit left them. Now, let's imagine if California had left the United States, do you think there'd be some articles written about the end of the United States as an entity? There probably would be. And yet the EU has the arrogance to ignore that one of the few countries in the EU, the UK, with the exception of France, the only country that can do full military spectrum capabilities from high-end warfighting to low-end peacekeeping, where the city of London, one of the world's great financial capitals, if not the world's great financial capital, resides, and where with MI5 and 6, the British have first-rate intelligence services and a geostrategic bent. that They lose that and have the nerve to say the Anglosphere doesn't exist because they don't like it, is an example of the wishful thinking. That is why the always wrong mainstream media, I think the FT, have really missed the boat. Because the Anglosphere is nothing if not coherent in its geostrategy in a way the EU can only dream about. And here's my example, which is the big one. Over the big issues of the 20th century and the 21st century, meaning World War I, World War II, and the cold war let's spell out historically as ever what we're talking about these are the big three decisions you have to make world war one world war two and the cold war the members of the anglosphere the uk canada australia new zealand and the united states sided together 15 times out of 15 times it is a perfect record that on the big geostrategic stuff The Anglosphere is always together, which is not something, to put it mildly, you can say about Europe. Also, unlike Europe, the Anglosphere have a number of reasonable armies here. The Australian Army and Navy, for their size, are quite good. Canada's too small, but they're good at what they do. Um, The UK, as I've already said, has a world-class military. And then there's the United States, which has the biggest military of them all. In addition... Strategically, these countries are aligning over the future. It isn't just the past and the present, but it's also the future that with AUKUS, which is an old-fashioned defense pact signed between the Australians, Anglosphere country, the UK, Anglosphere country, and the United States... The United States and the British are going to give Australia nuclear technology for their submarines, and in fact, they're both working on a new class of submarine for the Australians that with the nuclear wherewithal will allow it to go farther into the Indo-Pacific by a a huge factor, uh, a, a factor of 10 And the reality of this would be the three are now utterly interlinked. In addition, there's a chance for the United States to eventually place Marines on Darwin, the northern tip of Australia, meaning they will be able to resupply for any attack on Taiwan. And the Defense Pact has an old-fashioned defense terms that if any of these countries are attacked, the others will come to its defense. And there's absolutely no doubt that Australia... When confronted with buying their new nuclear-powered submarines, as originally they were going to buy them from the EU, and instead they decided to follow AUKUS and take this Anglosphere path, the reason they did so was they, aware that, they were aware that unlike the Lotus Eaters who run Brussels, the people who run the Anglosphere are not afraid of military conflict, that these are countries with a warrior culture that are not afraid to shoot people and take casualties, whereas the EU would snub you at a cocktail party. And that's the reason they made the shift. And that's precisely why President Macron was quote unquote offended because he saw history passing him by. What really irks the folks of the EU is that they thought they were the future. And Australia, in signing with AUKUS, has shown that they're very much the past. That an entity, even if it's a great power entity like the EU, that doesn't have a military, is a debating society and is not a serious great power. And Australia under the cosh from the Chinese for having the temerity to question the origins of COVID, the Chinese started a trade war with Australia and are busy threatening most of their neighbors in the Indo-Pacific that things were too fraught to go with the guys who arranged diplomatic conferences, talking shops, and at worst snub you at cocktail parties. They needed people willing to shoot with them. And in addition to this, the Anglister economies. Anglo-Saxon as they are, tend to be more dynamic, tend to grow at a much higher rate than the EU. There's more income disparity, more laissez-faire capitalism, less regulation, and more dynamism. And Australia wants to opt for having a more dynamic economy rather than becoming an over-bureaucratized, sclerotic, demographically deficient museum wasting away with growth rates of 1% at best. And that would be my answer to anybody who says the Anglister isn't real. Let's ask the Australians. Let's let's ask Canberra if they think it's real or not. Obviously, it is. And their record of working together 15 times out of 15 is unprecedented. And even for those EU institutionalists out there who act like institutions in, in and of themselves matter, which, of course, isn't true, excuse me, isn't true, but One of the organizations that actually works in the world that nobody knows anything about, but is incredibly important, is the Five Eyes organization. And this is the five intelligence agencies that share signals intelligence. And what that means is think of little boys trading baseball cards. You show what you've got in your hand and you say here's what I've got, what do you have? So in effect, there's a multiplier effect going on with these five intelligence agencies, meaning New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and the UK piggyback on the vast spending of the American intelligence scene, whereas the United States piggybacks upon the expertise that some of these countries have within area. For instance, the British from their empire have all kinds of contacts in terms of Uh, MI6 that the CIA don't have, Australia and the Indo-Pacific, same thing, and in fact, honorary Anglister member Japan is clamoring to join the Five Eyes, which is the most advanced intelligence grouping in the world. And to give you an idea of why culture matters and why language matters, and when we underestimate this, Charles de Gaulle did not when he said the two great advantages the Americans have they're not even aware of, which are English and the dollar. That every elite speaks English and a well-educated American has 27 adjectives in English, whereas a well-educated Frenchman has seven or eight. It's a huge advantage. I know this in my own life over and over again. When it comes to arguing through things, you find yourself even talking to highly intelligent people with great educations from around the world, but you know five adjectives they don't quickly under pressure. It's an immense advantage that English is the language of the elites of the world, both commercially and geostrategically. And so this binds the Five Eyes, the Anglosphere together through things like the Five Eyes. In addition, uh, these groupings have a common culture that we all were colonies of the British. And for good or for bad, that binds us together. Uh, My best friend at university at St. Andrews is a rather well-known Australian decision-maker named Michael Wesley. And Mike and I used to laugh when the British were being insufferable and snobby, and St. Andrews is nothing if not an Evelyn Waugh novel, I love that about it. But you would go to these events, and these pompous English people would do things, and Mike would look at me and say, they never got on the boat, they're not part of our frontier culture. We're tied to them, but we're the cousins, as John Le Carré said. We're related, if somewhat distantly. And that's not to say that we get along, like many cousins, we bicker and we fight. It's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, we bicker, we fight, but we come out shooting the Bolivian army together. That's the key fact of the Anglosphere. It's not that there's a lack of contention. For God's sake, I grew up in the UK. I'm aware of every difference between the United States and the British. I lived and worked that for eight years and have spent the rest of my adult life with a majority of my clients being in London. And I, if I had to pick a place to live other than America, ultimately it would be Britain. I'm most comfortable there. I've lived there for well over a decade of my life very, very happily. But we are different. We're cousins in an Agatha Christie murder mystery stuck together, uh, but we're cousins nonetheless. And I'll give you an example of the ties that bind. Think of the Five Eyes for a minute, this institutional organization. The Five Eyes was founded around sharing common intelligence. This is after the British, with the Cambridge spy ring led by Kim Philby, stole our nuclear secrets. The British, under Philby and other high elite members, of, of the British elite who were recruited as communists in the 1930s when they were students at Cambridge. Um, Burgess McLean, Blunt, uh, Karen Cross, the whole lot of them, led by Philby, um, they stole our nuclear secrets. And what did we do? We grumbled and we went back to working together, that we still share signals intelligence, open source intelligence with the British, in spite of the fact that British elites stole our nuclear secrets. Okay, now let's do a thought experiment. Let's imagine a British or French elite person stole the American nuclear secrets. We'd never hear the end of it. We'd talk about it constantly that they'd done this. But with the British, we rolled our eyes and went back to working together. There is a different degree of closeness among the Anglosphere members that EU elites do not understand. And it's grounded in this common historical lineage that comes from the British Empire, we have a view of individual liberty that is different than the Europeans, it's closer, it's more fractious, there's more individual liberty, less state control, more decentralization in Jeffersonianism, less centralism in a French way, uh, less regulation, more disparity, more dynamism, and this comes from our common culture. We just see things innately the same way. I'll never forget that on 9-11, the one phone call that got through as we waited for that last plane to descend upon the Capitol, and I was sitting at Heritage, the Heritage Foundation, if the plane that the people bravely brought down in Pennsylvania, and I think of them all the time, had not been brought down, it probably would have struck the Capitol if it struck the House side. I would have been fine, and if it struck the Senate side, I would have probably been dead. And as I'm sitting there deciding to stay and continue to do my job on that day, along with my heroic staff, a phone call gets through from Dominic Cummings, later to be famous as Boris Johnson's chief of staff and the architect of Brexit. He's the one call that gets through on the day, and what does Dom say? I hope you're okay. We're going to get the bastards. And that mattered immensely to us, that we weren't alone in the world, that the Anglister existed, that someone outside of our zone of incredible danger and peril was on our side. We immediately began gaming out that we thought together it was Al-Qaeda. He offered to help in a number of ways that I'll never forget. We offered to talk to the British government in a number of ways. And this happened innately. This was not institutional. This was cultural. This was personal. And that's an indelible tie. And that's why the Anglosphere is real and exists and works well. How does the Anglosphere look at the world? Now that we've seen that it certainly is a coherent entity, and in fact, in in terms of geostrategy, much more coherent entity than the EU. Um, One of the things that it's absolutely clear about is a hawkishness in general toward the autocratic powers of the world, particularly in China. And you see that with AUKUS, and that's why the Australians uh, chose to join with the Anglosphere, and that's why the Chinese predictably flipped their lid about it. Because what this means is that Australia is not alone, that the United States and the British and the rest of the Anglosphere see China. You see this even in Canada, where they've been very rough, uh, rightly so, with China over detaining various Canadian citizens to try to change various Australian legal cases involving Chinese nationals. And they've gotten tougher and tougher, even under the the Trudeau administration, which is nothing if not a floppy-haired Wilsonian jamboree. Even they have gotten tougher. Um, And the reasons for this is that they see this as a threat to the established order, and the Anglosphere is the established order, and that makes it inherently a conservative organization. They like the world the way it is because it's set up in their favor. They're free trading, and they see the world is set up in their favor, and indeed the world changed hands and structure from a British-dominated world to an American-dominated world without war in this case. Why? Because they're both members of the Anglosphere is the simple Occam's razor answer. Uh, Again, as Occam's razor says, logically, often the simplest answer to complicated questions is best. And that's why when so often, as the Thucydides trap says, uh, a rising power challenges an established power and sometimes takes over. Often this leads to war. Twelve out of 16 times in history that, that has been looked at, it leads to war. One of those four exceptions was the British and the Americans. And the reason it didn't lead to war, it led to tension over Suez, certainly. And there still are tensions. The British can't figure out how the Americans took their place, and the Americans can't figure out how British people my age, who never ran an empire, somehow think they still do. That's all true and annoying, but it doesn't change the basic fact there was no thought of conflict over Suez between the United States and the British. Why? We're both members of the Anglosphere is the simple answer. We have this common history, this common way of working, this common way of looking at the world, and it's to see whether a rising power is benign or not. And if it's not, to learn the lesson of the 1930s and prepare to balance against it much more quickly than the dithering, lotus-eating Europeans, for instance, who are desperate, always getting history wrong, always misreading it, Uh, It's incredible, their record of the 20th century. When they're arrogant to me, I can't believe it. It It shows hubris and no knowledge of history in the 20th century whatsoever. The Anglosphere attitude is after World War II, never again. And so quicker, more quickly than slowly, AUKUS comes into being. Five Eyes is now very much geared against Chinese encroachments into the Indo-Pacific. And so you have have the Anglosphere increasingly focusing on the most important region in the world, increasingly focusing on the only peer superpower competitor to challenge American and Anglosphere domination, which would be China, and increasingly, not bellicose, but martial to the extent that they're aware that to avoid war, the lesson of World War II is you have to deter quickly and up front... And the Anglosphere is very much doing that. So you have this huge and important piece of the puzzle with Five Eyes, with AUKUS, with the British on board, the United States and Australia, the Anglosphere very much coming to the fore um, in the Indo-Pacific. And for every European Union doubter who wish, wants to wish away the reality of something that's working better than they are, let's ask the Chinese if they believe in the Anglosphere. And I'll guarantee you the answer in Beijing is a furious Yes. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed doing this one. The world through the Anglosphere's eyes. We'll continue looking at the various chess pieces. We still have Russia, the EU, and India to go. And then we'll look again at the developing world, because that's fascinating as well. And that'll give us the full structural view of what all the chess pieces can do on the board. Again, for those of you who have subscribed, thank you so much. And we continue to have an overwhelming response. I love working with our community, and I've kept to my promise, despite hell and high water, that we'll keep doing this. Um, And for those of you who have subscribed, thanks. For those of you who haven't, please do so. Uh, so you can come along for the ride. And those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're only asking for $70 a year, $7 a month or $70 a year. So we can continue to give you this absolutely different cutting edge and up to the minute view of how the world works. And as time goes on and things get ever busier, I love that we do this together. So thank you so much. We're only asking for 70 Please do give so we can continue to give this the attention that it deserves. Listen, have a great week. And next week, I will be writing to you from the beautiful Riggs Bank Hotel. It's a former bank of the 19th century, converted into a lovely hotel in the beautiful Fords Theater District of Washington, where everything looks like the 1850s, my favorite part of the city. And John, Goodnight And I will be reporting to you about the speech we give, an incredibly important one, a salon dinner, for the Stand Together Alliance, the Koch Foundation, where we, for the first time, unveil the book. And I think next time I'll just do the speech verbatim after I've done it for them, so you guys can be absolutely up to date. The book will then be available in September for pre-order in these very modern times, as White Fox have made clear to me, it's the pre-ordering that matters, and we'll push very hard on that when the time is right. But for now, let's just enjoy the speech in the beginning of this wonderful process, because the starting gun is next week. Thanks very much and have a great week.